pronouns. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Leftology Podcast. Today, I am very glad to welcome a special guest. Uh, it is Kim Nelson, the Democratic candidate for South Carolina's U.S. House of Representatives, District 4. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, thank you for coming on. Uh, so I've got a few questions lined up here for you today. Uh, the first one is, uh, for our listeners, can you give a general overview of your background and policy positions? Yeah, um, I am from this district. I grew up in Greenville. I went to, I did my undergrad at Wofford. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big, bold progressive. And I say all the time that Southerners are not monolithic. Um, it, we can't be. This place, you know, I fully reject the narrative that Greenville or the upstate is conservative because it's the same place that made me. So that can't possibly um, ring true for everybody. We have a diversity of political opinions and life experiences here that shape us. And what shaped me um, particularly the most was that I am somebody whose life is um, intricately tied to health policy. So in 2016, um, my husband is also from this district, but his job had taken us to the central Florida area. And in 2016, um, when Donald Trump won, Republicans started attacking the Affordable Care Act. And my husband has a pre-existing condition. So I'm old enough to remember what life was like before um, the ACA came along and protected all of those. And I, you know, I didn't know what to do. We had two very young kids. My oldest was maybe, oh gosh, she just turned three. My youngest was not even a year yet. And with two babies and, you know, my husband being our primary breadwinner, um, I didn't know what to do. So I got involved in activism down there in Florida. Um, we came home uh, the following year and in talking about health policy and trying to get people to care about it and fight for it, um, it turns out that was my passion. So I got my master's in public health and worked in health policy um, where I got to do really cool things, uh, particularly for kids. That's where my heart is, where my home is. Um, I worked in children's health policy on things like vaccinations, on things like child homelessness, kids' mental health, um, things that you know really are also intricately tied to health policy. Um, and it didn't take too long for me to figure out that as I was trying to talk to lawmakers about, you know, what children in particular needed, and I felt like I was hitting a brick wall, um, it wasn't because they didn't have access to data and studies and experts. They very much had all of those things. They were choosing not to do better. And once I had that kind of click for me, it was like, all right, then I guess I'm gonna run for office. Um, so I think I bring a lot to the table being you know, from this area, being a public health professional, being somebody who is used to working in policy and who really enjoys it. Um, and also, you know, being a progressive, we need a uh, big, bold change. And I don't think that uh, certainly in my field in public health, that's not an anomaly. We, that's, that's how we best serve um, the people we work with and the communities we work for. Um, we need some really aggressive changes in a lot of different areas. And that's what I'm out here fighting for. Yeah. I'm not sure of the exact statistic, but um, it was done, I believe, in the last two to four years. But it was measuring the countries on like both uh, medical technology and then access. America was first in technology. 
And then I, we were somewhere between 20 and 40 in access. So yeah. So if you can pay, we have a great healthcare system, right? If you've got un, you know, unlimited income, if you've got, you know, you're lucky enough to live in an area that has a great hospital system, um, great, you know, that recruits and retains a lot of healthcare professionals, then you are probably doing a-okay. But the truth is a cancer diagnosis, no matter how privileged you are, it is still tough to overcome. And what we're seeing is that more and more families um, are dealing with, they're making financial choices about their healthcare and not health choices, right? And as a country, we, we spend more of our, you know, income, uh, more of our GDP on healthcare than any other developed nation in the world, but we're not getting a, a whole lot of bang for our buck. We're, sh we're throwing money at it and we don't have the healthiest population as a result of it. So there's that big disconnect um, between what we spend and how healthy we are. I've been uh, reading a book recently called Post-Truth that was uh, released by MIT. And it, mm -hmm. I just finished the second chapter and that generally talks over how we've kind of ended up here. And a lot of it goes over the cigarette companies of the 50s and how they created these think tanks and then hired supposed scientists to create these this data and misinformation campaigns in order to uh, fight back against the scientific data that labeled cigarettes as so dangerous and cancerous. And I think it was they didn't get a lawsuit for at least 40 years, pretty much. That was substantial. And then in the end, it was like $200 billion. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. there's definitely a lot of targets on the back for people who want to create a better healthcare system, a better place in America. Yeah. And, you know, thanks to things like Citizens United, um, money talks, right? Money gets you access to lawmakers. Money gets you votes. Money gets you all the things you need to pass policy. Um, and so there's a reason why, you know, Republicans certainly aren't responsive to things like Medicare for all, single payer, whatever you want to call it. Um, but a lot of Democrats aren't too. And that's because of the corruptive influence of money in our electoral system. Okay, uh, I'll get to the second question now. We briefly went over some of this before we started, but uh, South Carolina is, a, is seen at least as a very conservative state. Even the Democrats we have in Congress are fairly moderate, um, though Jim Clyburn has been a very effective lawmaker from what I've seen. Uh, through your experience, how do you believe progressive candidates are treated in the state? Oh, um, you know, I can only speak to you know, what I myself have experienced. Um, and so I don't want to necessarily um, paint with broad strokes here um, because, you know, I have had a lot of support from people who are moderate. I've had, I have good relationships with all of the candidates running um, because, you know, it's hard enough to be a Democrat in the South. We're not trying to make enemies here. I will say that, you know, more broadly, being a progressive and maybe it's the progressive thing, maybe it's the fact that I'm running in the upstate, um, you tend to not get a lot of support nationally. Um, the donor class is not usually aligned with progressive policies. 
Um, and so when, when you're a candidate, you have to do, you have to raise money, right? That's how you ultimately connect with voters is by, you have to have money for things like literature, for things like ads. And you get that money through something called call time, which is where you sit um, somewhere quiet and you just make phone calls to people who donate money for hours and hours and hours. And it's terrible. It is no fun. I Zero stars, do not recommend. Um, but it's, it's kind of just what you have to do when you run for office. And a lot of the names you're given, um, you know, they're very wealthy people. And so they might be opposed to things like changing the tax code, or they might work in an industry that you were trying to fundamentally reform. Um, and so that, that can be a real challenge to anyone who's a progressive and, you know, trying to run for office. I would say that is changing and we're seeing it um, in candidates like AOC and candidates like Cori Bush and candidates like Jamal Bowman. Um, every time progressives run, we expand that network and that support system a little bit more. So I would say it's, it's a numbers game, right? We just have to keep normalizing um, people who align more with our ideals. We have to keep uh, supporting candidates who do, who do put themselves out there and eventually it will change, but it just, it's one of those things that takes time. Yeah, it's, it's definitely changing. We're seeing a lot more grassroots campaigns on the progressive side. Bernie was leading pretty much donation wise until the, until he ended his campaign. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Was, and, you know, my campaign has benefited from that same kind of grassroots support. And I'm immensely proud of the fact that I've, you know, got a lot of people who donate $10, $15 here and there when they can afford it. Um, because to me, that's, those are people who, who care the most. They're, they don't have a ton of resources. They have to be very particular about where they spend it. And so if they're spending it on you, consider yourself uh, humbled because it is a testament to the message. It's a testament to the mission. And, you know, take that all in stride and do what you can with it to affect the change that, that people desperately need. Definitely. Okay. Our, my third question I have here. Uh, many on the right see progressive policies as a threat to their freedom and uh, constitutional rights. Often strawmen and often strawmen are arguments to be more extreme and outlandish. Uh, the best example I have of this is the right wing's attack on the Green New Deal and saying that it would take our hamburgers away. Um, how do you think? Uh, progressives as a larger body should combat this? I think, you know, it's, um, it's ridiculous, right? It's like you said, it's a straw man argument. And I don't think there's any value in saying, I don't want to take your hamburgers away. I want to do this X, Y, Z, because like in even repeating the lie, you legitimize it. Um, I think the way we message it is, we go on the offense, not defense. We, you know, we say, you know, if you've got a pre-existing condition that should not bankrupt you, like we operate from a place of moral clarity. Same with the Green New Deal. It's, you know, don't, don't spend your energy um, debunking their talking points. Just stick to your own, stick to why it benefits. Um, I, before I went into public health, most of my professional experience was actually in sales. Um, and, you kind of want to take a, you want to make it make sense for 
the people you're trying to convince. So people need to know what's in it for them. So you find what it is when you're talking to somebody, whether it's a loved one or if you're, you know, talking to voters, you have to make it make sense for them. And for each individual person, that's going to be different. Um, some people might not care one iota about the planet as a whole, but they have a $400 power bill. And you know what? That is getting harder and harder to justify. And what can be done? Well, let's talk about solar. Let's talk about wind energy um, and you know how much lower those bills are. And when you do that, when you frame it in that way, people are a lot less resistant to it. I've noticed a lot of uh, success in framing single payer healthcare through that lens of like, just, you know, whatever the case may be, you shouldn't have to go fund me your child's ER trip because that's an experience that everybody can relate to. I think we talked about on the last episode about how we don't view as Americans, we don't really view insurance as a tax because we only view taxes as kind of the, the things we send to the government, the part of our paycheck that we send to the government. We don't really picture the part that we have to shell out every single month, no matter what. It's in the law. You kind of have to have at least vehicular insurance if you have a car. And then if, if you don't have health insurance, you're practically not going to, it's not going to be very practical for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not a good, uh, not a good decision to not have health insurance, but a lot of people don't have that decision about, I think even under Biden's plan, it's still like 3% of Americans from down from 10. I'm yeah. Not- so it's, you know, he's, he's going to grow the number of people who have access and that is inherently a good thing. Um, but in making it a buy-in option to a system like Medicare. And granted, a lot of his plan rests on expanding subsidies so that more people can afford to buy insurance on their own, expanding, you know, pushing for more Medicaid expansion, things like that. Um, so you're, you're growing it in ways for lower income people. Um, anytime you tie healthcare access to ability to pay, you're going to miss people. But like you said, when you treat it like a tax, you are able to shift the burden onto those who have more resources, more ability to pay. Um, and you know, I'll use myself as an example. Our family policy um, in 2016, actually, our deductible was $750 for a family of four. And it cost us about 350 a month. Um, we had really good insurance, right? That was like, hallelujah, we made it. Fast forward, 2020, um, we pay $750 a month for a family of four. Our deductible is now $4,000. So, you know, it went up in every way that it can. And because our deductible is $4,000, and that's not even the worst one I've heard. But, you know, when you're middle, when you're, you know, middle class, a $4,000 deductible is a decent chunk of your take-home pay. And that's money that you're already paying premiums and now you're coming out of pocket for that $4,000 too. So even on a plan, you know, like Medicare for all, for example, if my taxes go up, I'm still saving about $13,000 total. That is a significant amount of what my family brings home in a year. I saw on Twitter today, it was somebody from Scotland talking about how they pay like $10 a month for health insurance, or $13 a month because they don't use 
uh, American dollars. They said that they spent more on a pizza than they had do monthly on uh, Medi- Medicaid or what yeah, they have in well, Scotland. Scotland. It's uh, so my, my husband's family is British. So this is a system that we hear about a lot just because, you know, it's what his aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents, you know, it's, it's what they have. And his parents who immigrated here in the seventies for graduate school and ended up staying, you know, it's what they grew up on. And yeah, so in the UK, you've got the NHS, which covers everyone. And his grandmother a couple of years ago needed, um, she needed a, gallbladder surgery, I think it was. And it was one of those conditions where, you know, she couldn't get in. It, it took, I think, four to six weeks to get the surgery scheduled. And she was uncomfortable while waiting. But, you know, ultimately, it wasn't a, an emergency situation. Had it been, she would have been seen sooner. Um, and it cost her nothing, right? And his aunt has, you know, you're eligible for the NHS. And then a lot of employers will supplement with a private insurance plan, which will get you things like a private room or access to specialists without a referral, things like that. But at the end of the day, nobody goes without care just because their job doesn't offer health insurance as a benefit. And that's the sticking point to me. It's that fundamental belief that everyone should have access to this because ultimately it's an infrastructure need. We need a healthy workforce if we want a productive economy. We don't get that when we exclude people from managing their diabetes effectively or, you know, making sure they have a healthy pregnancy or whatever the case may be. Definitely. We, my, the, the argument I've seen that works best for me for a progressive tax, which is what was, we're supposed to have at least for income is that those at the top do benefit the most from having like good government services because the money from workers and some people's view at least does funnel up to those at the top. If they have more healthy workers, that workers are going to be more productive and more money should theoretically at least go up back up to them. And so they benefit the most, therefore they should pay more percentage wise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, another thing, uh, the right talks a lot about uh, lines in those countries in like Sweden, the UK, elsewhere in the Europe. And the, the thing is that I've noticed is that America hosp- American hospitals already somewhat do have lines. And yeah. the reason they're shorter than those countries is because we have such a big paywall for getting for just going to a hospital. Ambulance rides are in the thousands, I believe. Yeah, so we wait here. That That is a myth. Um, if you need a, a screening test like a colonoscopy in this country, you also wait. If you need an MRI, you will wait. You will wait for a knee replacement. You will wait for a hip replacement. Um, so that that's purely propaganda. Um, every country in the world struggles with how to, how to get access to people, how to you know, manage that system of what's an emergency, what is critical, but can wait a couple days or a couple weeks, what is purely like a nice to do and not a need to do. Every country struggles with that system um, and how they handle it. And you know, there are variations in that, but in our country, it's, it ultimately comes down to ability to pay. And if you don't have an ability to pay, you're going to walk into an ER with stage four cancer. And that's the fundamental difference. Yeah, a big 
proportion of the money saved on the Medicare for all like, estimations, I think were the ability for people to get it checked earlier so that the procedures didn't cost quite as much. Yeah, and it would also, you know, in in my field, we talk a lot about uh, rural hospital closures, which is something that has affected South Carolina, um, less so in the upstate, but, you know, down around like Bamberg, um, Fairfield County, for example, those more rural counties have really struggled with it. And it's because a lot of uh, people who live in rural communities are on Medicaid, which reimburses at lower rates than private insurance or Medicare. Um, and because of that, what makes hospitals money are things like elective procedures, it's knee and hip replacements for, you know, by and large. And so when rural hospitals, they don't have specialists who do those types of procedures, they don't have, you know, the means to, to carry those out. And so eventually they're just overwhelmed with costs and they don't have the profit coming in to offset it. And that's why ultimately they close. So if you want to save rural health and rural hospital systems, we need a, a healthcare system more broadly that doesn't operate on profits and profits alone. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, so next I want to go into a little bit more controversial topic. It has been the main topic of discussion in most of American politics for the last month, and that is the Supreme Court. Ooh. And <laughs> it'll definitely, if when you get to the, or when you hopefully get to the House of Representatives up in Washington, uh, this will probably be the most, the biggest issue after hopefully winning the Senate back and the White House back. Um, so after the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, what do you believe is the best next step for Democrats in order to protect the rights of those threatened by her beliefs? Yeah, we need to expand the court. Um, because here's, here's the thing, if we don't, um, the Supreme Court with a 6-3 conservative bias, um, no matter what we are able to pass in the House and the Senate and get signed by, you know, hopefully President Biden, um, it'll all be for naught because what, what the Federalist Society will do, what ultra conservatives will do, they will use state legislatures like Mississippi, South Carolina um, to ram through bills like a personhood bill, for example, just to use abortion because it's it's something a lot of us are familiar with them doing. Um, they'll use state legislatures to pass a bill um, that essentially sets it up for a Supreme Court fight to overturn the something like Roe versus Wade, for example. And so if we don't expand the court, we are destined for that. We will not not only will we not get Medicare for all passed, we will lose the Affordable Care Act. We're probably gonna lose it anyway because that uh, Supreme Court decision is November 10th. I mean, we might not even have full election results by then. And that's, that is terrifying, um, particularly for my family, which you know we need those pre-existing protections, condition protections. Um, so you know, just to use that as an example of what happens if we don't expand the court, it's, it would be 40 years of not passing anything, not passing anything on the environment, not passing anything on healthcare, not passing anything on economic justice. So that to me is untenable. Um, and it's, you know, I'm a woman of reproductive age raising, unless they tell me otherwise, two little girls who will one day be in this position too. And the thought of them not having full control over their body, um, I'm not, 
I'm not willing for my children to lose that right. I'm not willing for my friends in the LGBTQ community to lose their rights to marry, to you know, lose their rights to serve in the military. Um, there's so much that has so much progress that has been made even in my lifetime um, that you, you can't just take it away. People aren't gonna take that lying down. And so we need to explore every option available to us, including expanding the court um, to ensure that we are protecting things like voting rights, which if we lose that, that would only further entrench them. So it's an all hands on deck moment. I am hopefully, you know, when I get to Congress, um, I will be part of a vocal um, contingent that will, you know, really lobby President Biden to, to explore those options and make sure that we're not uh, at the mercy of whatever, can I swear on this? Uh, yes. Okay, whatever bullshit the Federalist Society tries to ram down our throats. Uh, okay, so follow-up question. Uh, I've seen on the rounds on Twitter about a, a picture on television showing how long she's been in law and as a judge. She's only been a judge for about three years and doesn't meet many of the qualifications that all previous judges have made. Do you think that the House could possibly, do you think impeachment of her as a Supreme Court justice could be a possible thing that could be done? Yeah, I mean, my, my youngest child is four and a half. She'll be five the day after Christmas and she has been out of diapers longer than Amy Coney Barrett has been a judge. That's a problem. Um, she doesn't have the typical background. And, you know, I'm not saying that her confirmation hearings didn't have, you know, sexism apparent in them when people were like, who's going to do the laundry for all your kids? Like, yes, she encountered the sexism that every other woman in this country has experienced at some point. But that does not mean she is qualified. That does not mean that, you know, we should have someone who's never even tried a case on the Supreme Court, the, that experience matters because that experience is used to make good judicial decisions. Because let's keep in mind, these justices are lifetime appointments. There's, um, there's very little recourse for getting somebody off the court. So yeah, we should do everything in our power to, to preserve that kind of integrity of, of that court system um, and make sure that really only qualified people are appointed to it. I also think we should probably consider term limits for Supreme Court justices, um, especially since that seems to be the gambit where they appoint somebody in their 40s just to get them in there. And it's not just the Supreme Court, it's all of our federal courts that really need a good, long, hard look at how they function and, you know, good or bad, what we're setting ourselves up for in the current system. Okay. Uh, just a, another follow-up question for this. Uh, are there any big uh, it's been since, how long has it been? Uh, it's been at least like 25 years since we've had our last constitutional amendment. Do you think that there should be any that we should seek in the next four years? Like uh, a big thing, big movement on the left is to get rid of the electoral college. They see it as undemocratic and an old way of electing a president. Yeah. Um, so the electoral college, you know, we're, I'm a Southern Democrat, right? So under the electoral college, my vote doesn't count. Um, and it's, it's equally true of a Republican in New York City, right? Um, so I think every other country in the world has figured out how to make the popular vote work. 
Um, there's no reason why we can't, we can put a man on the moon, we can figure out this. Um, and, you know, we know the electoral college's origins were, were nefarious to begin with. It was to ensure that slave states that enslaved people that allowed enslaved um, people to fund their economy, basically, um, or relied on it. That was why the electoral college was created in, in the first place, right? To preserve that system. And so, you know, the world has changed a lot since the 1780s. Uh, we have the ability to pass laws that affect, you know, the lives we are living here and now and the world we inhabit now, and we should. One of them is the Electoral College. I also think we should ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, that to me should, should be the bare minimum. Um, I, there are other issues too, I think we, I think we need to stop relying on um, interpretations of the constitution for things, for things like that and just solidify those rights. Um, play the long game. And you know, it's not gonna be easy to change the constitution. It takes two thirds votes in the Senate and the house um, followed by ratification in three fourths of the states. In this hyper-political climate, that is not gonna be easy to do. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean we don't build the case for it. And, you know, if I may make a case for why state races matter too, your state, if you want to change the constitution, you're going to need your state legislature on board. So those are, um, South Carolina is one of the worst states for uncontested races. We have a high percentage of state house and state Senate seats that you know, one person runs, it's typically a Republican and nobody else even puts their name on the ballot. So we need to change those systems too, if we want to pass any of this. Uh, definitely. Um, so I went home to vote last weekend. I did okay, my three hour, uh, Florence, South Carolina. Okay. So I did my three hour drive over and luckily the uh, house or the South Carolina house is uncontested. Uh, but it's a Democratic candidate, luckily. Um, <laughs> I got Terry Alexander, which he's pretty close to my political yeah. views somehow. Um, and that, but we also kind of forget on a much smaller positions than state house because there was positions like coroner, which probably very few people understand what the coroner even can do. Um, for those who don't, the coroner is the only person who can arrest the county sheriff. And there was only a Republican on the ballot. And those small positions are only filled by Republicans in states like these in South Carolina, because Democrats honestly forget them for higher level positions, including state house. So yeah, and Republicans did something really smart um, when, you know, I think around the time I was born, so in the eighties, um, they started running candidates for school board for city council, county council, coroner, things like that. Um, because one, that's how you build a bench, right? Those people then run for state house, then they run for Congress or Senate or governor, for example. Um, that's how a lot of them get their start. So one, it's important for you know building that capacity for the future um, and building that name recognition. But two, yeah, they understood the role that local government plays. Like we have talked all you know summer, long about police brutality. And as much as there are things that the House and the Senate and the President can do about police brutality, 
most of what will ultimately change the landscape of how policing is performed in this country are your city and your county county councils because they're the ones typically that you know in some places your sheriff's office is elected independently um you know in the upstate we that's how we have it that's how we have it i think more broadly in south carolina no, but, florence is the same yeah so your city your county council they're the ones that pass the budgets they're the ones that um you know try your your solicitor for example um that's who tries police brutality cases so all of those positions that are hyper local and that most people never even think of um they're gonna shape a lot of what how we have this reckoning you know ultimately what that looks like and so if you care about that issue make sure you're investing your energy where it will do the most good. And next question I have uh, is not on the ones that I put beforehand, but an important one that I thought of along the way. Uh, Under the last about five years now, uh, we've definitely seen a lot of radicalization of all age groups from old to young uh, towards the far right. How do you think that we can combat this in the next four years? Oh, you know, that's, that's really tough. Um, Donald Trump, he is a symptom. He's not the disease. And I think with the proliferation of social media, it's the way social media works is that basically so long as you can pay those ad dollars, you can sprinkle whatever you want. Um, because, you know, companies like Facebook, they don't have to promote it, but, you know, they hide behind this their interpretation of First Amendment, which they basically just use to absolve themselves of any responsibility in this. Um, And so I think that's something that Congress really needs to figure out is how to hold social media companies accountable for that. Like, Like I said earlier, I cut my teeth in vaccine advocacy. So I have been watching this unfold for a good long while. Um, And it is so frustrating because, you know, using vaccines again as as an example, you know, your state health departments, your county health departments, they don't have the budgets, the ad budgets to blow on social media um, advertising the way that an anti-vaccine group does um, that just fundraises for that specific purpose and that provides no benefit to the community in addition to it. So um, to me, that's step one is reining all of that in, reining that misinformation campaign in. Um, I think step two is that, you know, there needs... I, I don't really know how we come back from this. Um, I think there does need to be more accountability of the white supremacist, white nationalist groups that have sprung up, um, you know, in response to Trump. I mean, that's really something that he is emboldened and we, we have to find a way to not just, you know, force them back into the shadows, but to actually root it out. Um, I don't know if it's something that, you know, we take a multifaceted approach to everything from changing our school curriculum to be more in line with, you know, good and bad, what this country has done and had done to it. Um, I think, you know, we just stop preserving the systems that, that have led to this moment. And I think that's one thing, um, 
I hear a lot on the campaign trail is how desperate people are to go back to normal. Normal is what got us into this mess. Complacency is what got us into this mess in the first place. We can't go back to those systems. Otherwise, we're just going to be here again. Normal is gone at this point. There's no return anymore, in my yep. view. We're past the point. Um, so, so in 2016, with the uh, Bernie Sanders uh, presidential race, uh, he didn't win. But what came out of it was the revival of uh, left-wing politics that could probably compete whatever Eugene Debs did back in the 1900, early 1900s. Um, so uh, outside of winning, are there any other goals for your campaign? Yeah, um, making sure that there's infrastructure um, and resources for whoever runs after me, whether it's, you know, if I don't win, whether it's for this seat or, you know, a state or local seat next, um, there's, I talk a lot about systems. It's, it's one of my favorite words and systems work exactly like they are designed to. Um, and one thing I realized very quickly and very early on in my run was that the political system um, is designed to concentrate power in the hands of the already powerful. Um, the very first money you get when you run for office, um, the very first phone calls you make are to your friends, your family, your social network. Um, and as a congressional candidate, kind of the, the powers that be, um, those established organizations, they expect you to raise about 100,000 just from that, that who does that, who does that exclude, right? Everyday people. I don't know anyone in my family or social network who could be like, yeah, here's, here's a, you know, $2,800 check, right? That's, that is not something that a lot of people have the ability to do. Most Americans don't even have $400 in a savings account for an emergency. So, you know, we are designing the system so that it's, people who are already well-connected, who are already wealthy, who have the ability to run a successful campaign and then to legislate. That has to change. Um, and the way we change it is by one, being competitive here um, so that we can show Democrats, Democrats are competitive here, progressives are competitive here. If you invest in resources here, you will see a return on that investment. Um, but what I want to do is leave something bigger than me for when I'm gone. I, you know, this is my home. This is where I grew up. This is where I'm raising my children. And to me, I don't want it to be the upstate of my youth where you couldn't even say I'm a Democrat. Um, and that means that we have to work really, really hard so that whoever does come next doesn't face the same obstacles. They'll have their own obstacles for sure, but maybe they won't be you know, the lack of attention, maybe they won't be the lack of resources at least. Yes. Um, so before we get to the end, is there anything that you would like to go over? Oh, um, you know, obviously if somebody is listening to um, something like this, they, they probably care about politics. Um, but just in case, uh, none of this happens without the will of the people. It, I know that sounds really cliched, um, but if your vote didn't matter, they wouldn't be working so damn hard to keep you from doing it. So yeah, 
don't think that your vote doesn't count in red South Carolina. It does. It very much does. Um, you know, there is polling from the Biden campaign. There's polling from the Harrison campaign that shows that this state is competitive. We know that when we run good candidates, people will come out. And I'm seeing that with my own campaign of, you know, I've raised more than any Democrat has raised for the seat to date. I managed to outraise William Timmons um, in our pre-primary filing. And if you look at the disparity between, you know, his financials and mine, he's he's got a lot of money, but it's all from PACs, basically. His actual um, real people donors are a very small percentage of what he brings in to the point where I outraise him nine to one consistently in real people money. So don't tell me there's not political will here for change. There is, but voter suppression, it's not just, you know, closing polling locations and requiring ID. It's also making you feel like you're the only one and your vote couldn't possibly matter. So you might as well stay home. And I am here to say that is a load of bull. It does matter. Get out there. And it, it's not just enough to vote. Unfortunately, you do need to volunteer. You need to pick up the phone and call people. You need to knock on doors, you know, figure out some way to hook in because that's ultimately what it takes. We can't be passive and expect big results. It's going to take, it's going to take a lot of work and we have to be willing to dig in and not get discouraged. If it doesn't work the first one, two, three, four times we try, just keep going. Eventually it will get there. Definitely. We've seen the, uh, I think North Carolina and possibly Georgia are going to switch over this year to being a Democrat strongholds, at least like Virginia did in the last eight years or so. Yeah. I think South Carolina is a little bit further behind. I, I, I give them an extra like uh, two election cycles before we get there, but I think we're on the way. Yeah. We tend to be considered like 10 years behind everybody on fashion. So, you know, if that, if that tracks for politics, then you know, yeah, about two election cycles, we'll get there. But, but you know why? Why North Carolina and Georgia are, you know, capable of changing? It's because of organizers. It didn't just happen. People put in the work. Yeah, they've got the, I think it's the research triangle is a big reason for that because they get so many people that come to college and stay there. Mm-hmm. So the, the state has diversified since those schools got big and I, I'm assuming the same would probably be for Clemson. Yeah, USC, USC, yeah. Uh, but that's, we can't really predict everything. We can only just throw out our guesses on what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, so before we end here, uh, what would you like to promote, if anything? Oh, um, civic obligation. <laughs> Uh, please go vote if you haven't already. Uh, I went home and voted. It, that's a three-hour drive. Um, hopefully, it doesn't take a three-hour drive. Uh, if you're in Texas, then I'm, I'm really sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, at this point, if you've got a mail-in ballot, you really need to hand it in because it is not going to get there in time otherwise. Uh, um, yeah. You, you personally driving is probably going to be faster, uh, but a lot of people don't have time for that. Um, More resources, yeah. I'm very glad to see an increase in voting for the pre-election. I think it's beaten in a lot of states what they actually had last time. 
Yeah, South Carolina has already crested a million um, absentee ballots. So that's that's huge. This is a state of 5 million people. So the fact that, you know, 20% of us have already voted, um, that's saying something. Uh, for those in South Carolina, um, Jamie Harrison has broken all Senate records for fundraising. So yeah. this is definitely doable. Um, is there anywhere that people should go to learn more about you in the uh, four days between when I release this and when the election is? Right. Um, so my website is Kim Nelson for Congress and I'm on um, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Y'all probably don't use Facebook. Um, but anyway, you can find me the at symbol Kim, the word for F-O-R-S-C. And uh, I'm probably most active on Twitter, Instagram. I kind of just use for pictures of my kids a lot of times, but you know, it is what it is. Well, thank you for coming on. Um, this has been a great discussion. Um, and thank you everybody for listening. Have a good day.